he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming when no one can work. But while I'm here in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told them, go wash yourself in the pool of Salome. Salome means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I am the same one. They asked, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed and now I can see. Where is he now, they asked. I don't know, he replied. Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus made the mud and healed him. The Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, he put the mud on my eyes and when it, I washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God for he is working on the Sabbath. Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs. So there were deep divisions of opinion among them. Then the Pharisees asked questions, the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man who had been blind and could now see. So they called in his parents they asked them, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? His parents replied, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see and who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said, he's old enough, ask him. So for a second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man Jesus is a sinner. I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied. But I know this, I was blind and now I can see. But what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man explained, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why don't you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses but we don't even know where this man comes from. Why? That's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. You were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And then they threw him out of the synagogue. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, Who is he, sir? 
I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshipped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, Are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied. But you remain guilty because you claim you can see. Amen. Wonderful. Isn't this exciting? Well, I'm excited. Uh, Wonderful to uh, be here. I'm really looking forward to spending uh, four mornings uh, in the Gospel of John. Uh, taking our theme of the church actually and taking it right back to who Jesus is and uh, exploring uh, together. We've got quite a bit of work to do this morning. Uh, If you're feeling a bit exhausted, I'm sorry about that, but I'm going to make you work a little bit. Uh, We've got to do a little bit of work on uh, setting setting John's gospel in its context so that we can uh, gain from it as uh, the week goes on. I would like us to uh, take a moment to just kind of pray together. There's a reflection I've written that we're going to take each morning because I really think it's important that as we uh, encounter the Word of God, we invite God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son to be with us as we do that. There is no point in reading Scripture as if it's a dead book that was written thousands of years ago. We have to invite the God who is alive today to come and meet with us as we read. So let's just take a moment. Uh, These words will come on the screen. You can look at them there or you can close your eyes. Uh, If you are tired, this is your opportunity to get about two and a half minutes of sleep. Uh, so that you'll be fresh for uh, what comes after. So let's just uh, uh, take this moment. Uh, This is called the blessing. May God, in whose furnace faith is forged, from whose being beauty breathes, from whose dawning darkness flees, shine on you. May the Father whose love for you beats with a rhythm time itself can't stop, whose presence in your exile is the promise of home, whose certainties are deeper than the cellars of your city, whose breath is life, breathe on you. May the sun, whose story is a mirror of your own, who has journeyed into darkness to find a key to your prison, who has dived the deepest oceans to find pearls for your wisdom, who has looked into your heart and found a beauty worth the battle, who has written your name on a white stone carved in secret, hold you. May the Spirit, who has waited millennia to fill you, who shaped the word that moved the wind of the morning that conceived you, who holds the earth on which you stand as an artist holds a candle, who fully knows you, wholly own you. So may God, the faithful Father, God, the scarred Son, God, the sculpting Spirit, journey with you. And our prayer for you guys this week is that this would be a week in which you journey with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and in which the blessing of God comes to rest, comes to reside in your life and in your heart. And we want nothing more than for a bunch of people who gather at this event called Spring Harvest this week to go home carrying something more of the blessing of God for those that they love and those that they know and those that they don't know and those that they are only just learning to love. We want this to be event, an event in which some combustion takes place in the presence of God. And uh, as a nice little segue, that's what John wanted really in writing his gospel. We're going to go to John and we're going to let John uh, guide us in understanding uh, what the church is. Understanding this notion that the church, this movement of people through history, is God's brilliant idea. God's way of blessing the earth. Thousands of years earlier, God said to Abraham, I will bless all the nations through you. And John is here to tell us that in Christ, that blessing has become possible. 
So we're going to let John be our kind of tour guide, I guess, into understanding how that might be. So we're doing four passages together. We're, doing, we're jumping around a bit. Uh, we're, we're not being particularly chronological, uh, but that's okay because neither was John. So it's not a big issue. We are going to jump around a bit. And uh, this morning we're going to look at John 9, that lovely passage that Damien uh, read to us. Let me just set this for our context before we go to where John's coming from. A little bit about where we're coming from uh, with this in terms of what our theme is through this week. We've taken these four big ideas about what the church is. The church as the people of God, the church as the community of the Spirit, the church as the body of Christ, and the church as the bride of Christ. And we've, from each of those, we've, we're exploring together, and I'm sure you've begun to pick this up just even uh, being around the site, four brilliant ideas about what God is doing in the church. Today's brilliant idea is shine through them. God's desire and intent to shine the light of His wisdom and grace and beauty through this movement called the church, the people whom God shines. So we want you to hold that intention, if you like, with John. We're thinking about what does it mean that God wants to shine his light through this people movement called the church, and then we're exploring that in relation to the stories that John has to tell us about the life of Jesus. And we're going to ask specific questions in each of these stories we look at through John's gospel. We're going to ask some questions about what John is trying to tell us and what that means for us as church today. Now, I said we'd have to do a bit of work today, and one of the things we have to do, um, because uh, they tell you it uh, when you come to speak at Spring Harvest, always stick to the text that you're given. So we're going to break that rule right at the beginning, because <laughs> uh, it seems only fair that we should do so, because it's really, it's not impossible, but it's really difficult to explore passages in the Gospel of John without understanding John's intention for that gospel. So in order to do that, I'm going to take a little detour. I kind of half apologize for this, but you'll understand afterwards why it's necessary. We're going to take a little detour to John chapter 1. We're going to look at how he sets up the gospel, because that will give us some questions which we can then ask this morning and tomorrow and the next day and the next day about the particular passages we're looking at. Because John does something which the other gospel writers don't, which is he puts a prologue to his gospel. He doesn't launch straight into the story. He sets it in place with a kind of prologue. This is a prologue some of you may recognize. I don't know if you recognize these words. Two households, both alike in dignity. In fair Verona, where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge, break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil... I was really looking forward to doing this. This is great. I'm loving this. Make civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured, piteous overthrows do with their death bury their parents' strife. The fe- I love this. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end naught could remove, is now the two hours' traffic of our stage. Isn't that lovely? If you didn't recognize it, it's Romeo and Juliet. Uh, it wasn't EastEnders. I'm really sorry. Um, maybe tomorrow we'll have a little quote from EastEnders just to kind of, you know, balance things out. But this is Romeo and Juliet, okay? And if you go and see Romeo and Juliet or you watch one of the movies or you go and see one of uh, most of uh, Shakespeare's plays or actually your local pantomime, very often you will have a prologue. Somebody will come on at the beginning who's not actually one of the characters of the action, who's called the chorus, who's somebody who's kind of out, not part of the audience but not quite part of the play either. And they come on and they say, this is what's going to happen for the next couple of hours. There are four exits, two at the back, two in the middle. No, they're not doing that. They're giving you a bit of a prologue. They're giving you an introduction. And the idea of the prologue is that by the time you've heard it, you've got some notion of what's happening. I think, I love the Romeo and Juliet one because actually, God bless him, I find Shakespeare a bit boring. And because of the prologue, I don't need to watch it because he's told me the story. So I, I can just enjoy it then. I don't get confused. But the idea is it's not he's doing all this, but he's telling you this is where we're going. This is what my story is going to be about. We're about to spend a couple of hours together exploring this amazing story of this young couple who fall in love. And John does the same thing with his prologue. I have a very good friend who wrote an 80,000-word thesis on the first eight verses of John. So there's a lot in there. John's prologue is setting in place what is to come in the gospel. In simple terms, if you like, it gives you a focus. It tells you what questions to ask as you journey through 
the gospel. And John has some particular ideas in mind and some particular purposes that whilst they exist in the other gospels, they're not as explicit. He's very, very explicit about what it is he's trying to do. So let's just read some words quickly from John 1, just to set, this is the first five verses of John's gospel. In the beginning, the word already, sorry, let's jump forward, that was my fault, and it's gone away, here it is, come back, no, come back, it's doing strange things, it should happen there, there it is, sorry about that, in the beginning, oh, weird, isn't it? Very embarrassing. Come back, windows, all is forgiven. I'll go one more and we'll try. Now stay. There it is. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. This is the New Living Translation. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him and nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. And then a key verse which comes up a little later in John 1 verse 14, which is the kind of, this is the story I'm going to tell you. The word, this word that I'm talking about, John says, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out. So John is saying, I'm going to tell you something about this Jesus. And John is saying, in, in, in contrast to the other Gospels, he's going to tell you, I'm going to tell you a little bit about this Jesus who I have now come to realize was God before the beginning of time and came to us in Jesus. And we saw him and we heard him and we touched him and we understood him and we grasped who he was. And in doing so, we saw the glory of the God who has existed for all eternity. That's a big job to achieve roughly 50, 60 years after the death of Christ. It's a big job to achieve in the first century to explain to people how that is the case, but it's the challenge that John takes on. N.T. Wright says of John's gospel, John does not describe the transfiguration, so there's no uh, account in John's gospel of what's called the transfiguration as the other Gospels do, in a sense, John's whole story is about the transfiguration. He invites us to be still and know, to look again into the human face of Jesus of Nazareth until the awesome knowledge comes over us, wave upon terrifying wave, that we are looking into the human face of the living God. That is John's purpose, that you might understand that when you look into the face of Jesus, you are looking into the face of God. And there are reasons, which we'll come to in a moment, why John considers it so important to do that. His gospel is totally focused on who Jesus is and understanding how it can be that this Jesus is, in fact, God. John could have subtitled his gospel, Prepare to Meet Thy God, but he would have meant it in a really nice way, which it usually doesn't when it's on a... When I used to hang out as a kid, there was a church that had Prepare to Meet Thy God written on its roof. And we lived up on the hill and looked down. And every day I looked at it and thought, I really don't think I want to. Thank you very much. So I'll pass on meeting your particular God. But John is like, do you remember the born identity where he wakes up in the water and he has to gouge something out of his skin? And if you don't, this is pointless, but it doesn't matter. And he doesn't know who he is. And he has to find out who he is by tracing the clues that he's left in his own life. He has to piece together the clues to find out who he is. Well, John is piecing together the clues as to who Jesus is. And here's something that's really, really important for you guys to get. And if we can grab this now, it'll help us later in the week. John is not just telling a theological story. He is doing that. He's deeply, deeply theological. And he's not just doing a historical thing, though he is doing that, because he's also deeply committed to telling the story. But he's giving you his personal account. Because he's saying, I saw this man, Jesus. And I traveled with him and I heard him. And as a result of me seeing him, I have come to know that this is who he is. 
And I want you guys who didn't have the privilege of being with him in the flesh to know how I did that. I want you to know that I went from sitting on the lakeside listening to him to later understanding that he is the God of the whole universe. I want you to know how I made that journey. That's really, really important for us to go. So, so uh, these lovely words, and I know we're taking a bit of time, but it's really, you'll find as we do the other chapters that it's really important that we, that we get this. So John does this amazing thing about uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And in doing that, he's doing something which we will come back to every single day of this week as we look at different parts of the gospel. He's taking a concept that exists differently but in parallel in both Jewish and Greek culture. So if you, we're not going to read it now, but if you want to make a note, you can look it up later. Proverbs 8 is this fantastic passage where it talks about wisdom and it, and it personifies wisdom. And wisdom says, I was with God at his side on the day that he made everything. And everything he made, I was involved in. It's not exactly word for word what John says about Jesus, but it's very close. So John is saying to the Jews, this idea you have that there is a wisdom, a spoken wisdom of God that was present in the creation, that's what I'm talking about to you Jews. But he also knows that in Greek culture, there has existed at this point for about 500 years an understanding of this concept of the logos, the word. The Greeks had no notion of who Yahweh was, and they didn't know the Jewish creation story, but they did believe that the world kind of makes sense. And they believe that there is a reason, a kind of a a sensibleness, a hanging togetherness. That's why they love triangles. Greek people love triangles. I don't know if they still do. Are there any Greeks here? Do you like triangles? I don't know. But you used to, promise me. I promise you. You used to love triangles. Because they all kind of fit, and then you discover all these weird relationships. It worked. It's good. And he discovered that when you, when you draw a triangle, it all kind of relates, and there's these rules, and there's this brilliant thing where you can take one triangle, and because you know what that triangle is, you can understand another triangle. And for some reason, some people consider it's important to understand triangles. <laughs> I have no idea why it's useful. But there are people in this room who make a very good living out of understanding triangles, and God bless you. But the Greeks loved all that. They loved discovering patterns and relationships in the world and things that fit together and made sense because they believed that at the heart of the world, there was a reason. There was reason. There was thought that made sense. They didn't quite have a a, a personal view of God in quite the same way that the Jews did, and they didn't quite say this, but they did say that whoever or whatever God is, (laughs) there is a reason There's a reasonableness about how the world is made. And they call this, the the one word that most captured this was this word logos, the word, the reason. And John says, it's so brilliant. How can you take four words, or however many it is, in the beginning, anyway, whatever that is. How can you take such a short sentence, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's a lot more than four words, isn't it? And how can you take that little sentence and in it take the whole of Jewish history and culture and the whole of Greek history and culture and say to both of them, this Jesus is the root of who you are. This Jesus, I'm telling you, has come to show you, has come to give a name and a face to this thing that you understand to be present in the world. It's a huge, huge argument. To the Jews, Jesus is the wisdom of God come in the flesh. To the Greeks, Jesus is the reason for the universe come in the flesh. And to both, John wants to say, it is this Jesus who answers these questions. The fulfillment of every Jewish promise, the answer to every Greek question. And part of doing this for John, as we saw in the text, is he sets up these two really, really big, big concepts. He says, this word was the life and the light of God, the light that gives life to everyone. So he says, what can we think of? What is a concept? What is is something that is so fundamental to everybody that nobody will doubt that it's something to do with them? (laughs) We can't talk about Jewish sacrifice because that's nothing to do with some of these people. Let's, not talk, let's talk about something that is so fundamental that everybody can say, that affects me. Life 
and light. And all the way through John's gospel, all the way through, you will hear life and light over and over again. Jesus bringing life and light, life and light. These two things happening because Jesus is the heart of the universe putting on a human face. Jesus is the center of the cosmos knocking on your door and saying, put the kettle on, I want to come and have a cup of tea with you. That's the audacious claim. Now, you may sit here thinking, I, honestly, I'm, you guys got to be authentic, so you've got to honestly admit, if you're sitting there thinking, well, that ain't going to happen, the very heart of the universe coming to my house for a cup of tea, that's a really big claim, and it is a really big claim, but it is the claim that John is making. The very reason that the cosmos exists coming to your house to sit and have a cup of tea with you. The hugeness of the universe represented in the face of a single human. That is the claim, the audacious claim that John is making. So, almost the end of our detour, I promise. <laughs> so, three principles that come out of that. And I want, we're going to actually come back to these three principles every day uh, that we do this this week. Three questions, if you like, that arise, or three claims that John is making that I'm drawing out from this because they then become very, very important to how we read the stories he tells. So claim number one that John is making, Jesus completes the Jewish story. So John is saying to the Jews, Jesus is the fulfillment of your story. And his gospel is full. It's like a bric-a-brac store of Jewish imagery. And, and uh, we used to, when I lived in Holland, any Dutch people here? There's got to be some Dutch people here. Is Holland closed this week? Anyway, okay. Good. I knew there'd be someone. Are you sort of semi-Dutch? or Anyway, whatever. When we lived in Holland, they had these wonderful things called kringlopers. That's not a sort of thing that, that attacks you in the street. A kringloper is like, uh, is, a, is a big, a kringloping means walking around finding bargains. And it's like a charity shop, but it's massive. It's big as this tent, full of everybody's junk. It's brilliant. And you just wander around buying things. It's great. So it's like charity shops, but massive. And John is saying, John's gospel is like a massive warehouse full of Jewish symbols. <laughs> he just crams them all in there. Anything he can find of a Jewish symbol, he crams it and he says, Jesus makes sense of this. Everything you Jews think about light and life and living water and, and the, 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 the temple, and that's all Jesus. It completes the Jewish story. But... For the Greeks, for whom that story is meaningless, or not meaningless, but they don't know it yet, Jesus also illuminates the universe itself. So in exactly the same way that Jesus brings fulfillment to the Jewish story, he also brings fulfillment to the human story. You see Paul doing this in parallel. Paul and John, theologically, are, are like these buddies. They're like racing buddies. They're joined at the hip. And they work through their theology together. And Paul goes through the same process in exactly the same way that Jesus fulfills the promises hidden in the charity store of Jewish symbolism. So he fulfills the promise hidden in the charity store of Greek symbolism and Gentile symbolism. Jesus illuminates the universe. So when your neighbor says, I don't know anything about all that religious stuff. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you do. All those people in the tent waving their arms. It's all a bit odd. I was with a friend yesterday who was on site just for one day who's not a Christian at all. He came with some other people. And watching his face when he popped into the big top for 10 minutes was a dream. What are you people on? I know you don't like to think you're weird, but believe me, you are. What is this? So when somebody says to you, I don't understand any of this, you have to say to them, but that doesn't matter because Jesus is not about this. He's about what makes your heart beat. It's about what makes the blood flow around your body. It's about how, he's about how you love your children. He's about how you feel separation and loss and love. He's about human stuff because Jesus is the wisdom at the center of the universe. And John, it don't, please don't anybody be offended by this if you're into the Jewish stuff. John is not satisfied with a Jewish Jesus because <laughs> a Jewish Jesus isn't enough. He wants a Jesus for the whole world. And he wants us to know that Jesus makes sense of every human story. So he chooses the Greeks as the people who by definition are outside of the Jewish story and he says he's your Jesus too. He's the center of 
it all. And then the third principle, which is really important for us this week, is John's principle that the light that God has shone through Jesus, he now shines through the church. This one's a little more difficult to grasp from the text, but it is there, and it's particularly there in terms of who John is and how he writes. We believe that this gospel was written by the Apostle John. I think that's a fairly good bet, and it, in fact, it doesn't matter if it wasn't. It was written by somebody in the same situation, but it's written probably about 90 AD, about 50 or 60 years after Christ, and it's written by someone who is an elder in the church, probably in the church at Ephesus. So probably, uh, if it is John the Apostle, then John ended up as one of the elders in the church at Ephesus as a teacher of God's truth, and he loved the church. He loved the church. That's partly why when he ended up on Patmos in exile, he was praying for the churches. He was saying, God, give me a message for the church. He loved the church. And as he writes, he's writing for a very, very clear reason. He's saying when we gather together and we take the Eucharist, we take the, the supper, we take bread and wine together, and as we worship this Jesus as the king of the universe, he says to himself, how did we get to that from Jesus on the lakeside? To use theological language, how did we get from the Jesus of history to the Christ of faith? And are they two different people? Lots of liberal theologians will tell you there's no connection. They'll say the Jesus of history was a wandering prophet who taught some people nice things. The Christ of faith was invented by Paul. That's what they'll tell you. And John is there sitting in the middle saying, nah, 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 nah. It's not true because John represents both the witness to the Jesus of history and the affirmation of the Christ of faith. John says, I was with him and I now honor him as the king of the universe. And there is a journey to go on, but I come to tell you that the doctrines of the church, which are absolutely dripping from John's gospel, John's gospel is closer to the church fathers than any of the other gospels because he's begun to formulate. The Trinity is there and the key doctrines of the deity of Christ, it's all there. And John wants to say that the doctrines of the church are inextricably and intimately and totally linked to who Jesus was in history. It is not two Jesuses, there is one. The Christ of faith is the Jesus of history, and I want you, John says, to make that link. And I want us this week, we want us together, to make that link between the Jesus of history and the Christ we worship now. To know that this is the same Jesus. And that when we talk about Trinity and when we talk about some of these complex concepts of who Jesus is, and when we defend as a church our belief, what we are defending is fidelity to Christ. And John wants us to know that the journey that God began in Jesus, he has continued, he is continuing in the church of Christ. And it's really important that we get that. Hence Paul, uh, this is a verse that will come up later in the zones for many of you, but Paul in Ephesians saying that God's intent now is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. What was it John said? Jesus is the wisdom of God. And then Paul says, through the church, this wisdom of God is going to be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. So right at the heart of Spring Harvest this week, there is this image of the prism. If you didn't realize that's what all those triangles were on all the things, that's what it is, okay? This image of the prism, because John says Jesus is the embodiment of this mysterious light, this wisdom, this character of God. And then with, alongside, standing alongside his friend Paul, he says, and now, in the church, that wisdom is being displayed to everybody, pushed out into the whole world. And John wants us to know that what is happening in the church and what happened in Jesus are connected. God sent Jesus to shine his light, and he now wants to shine that light through us. And you'll be pleased to know, Damien, that we're now arriving at John chapter 9. It's good, isn't it? It's like your train was slightly delayed, but it is now pulling in. Please step back from the platform. So John chapter 9, which is an example of this, and I've laid that down because in each day, like I said, we can come back to those three things. Jesus fulfilling the Jewish promise, answering the Greek question, and setting the church in motion are, those, are the three things that we're going to explore together. So this lovely picture of the healing of a man born blind. I don't know if you've come across uh, these, sorry, these are the, the, the resolution on these isn't great because they're just mine from the laptop, but these are the paintings of a man called Esref Armachan. He's Turkish, and uh, frankly, he's not ever going to be 
listed in the art books as the greatest painter who ever lived. These aren't absolutely brilliant works of art, but they're really nice paintings. And they become particularly interest when, interesting when you discover that Esref Armachan was born completely blind. They, there's a rumor from his parents that he had for a few days a very small of light, bit of light going into his head through one eye, but then that shut down as well. So he has never seen anything, but he paints. It, I know it's weird, isn't it? But it is true. Spooky. He paints things that he has never seen. And uh, they're so interested in this that they've... This is, uh, this is him uh, wearing sunglasses, so you're in no doubt. As to his... Uh, and they're so interested in this man that they shipped him over to America to scan his brain because they don't understand how it is that someone who can't see can see. <laughs> and this is what one of the kind of professors, if you like, of, the, uh, of this case said. Mr. Armahan is an important figure in the history of picture making and in the history of knowledge. His work is remarkable. I was struck by the drawings he has made as much as by his work with paint. He has demonstrated for the first time that a blind person can develop on his or her own pictorial skills that equal of the, the equal of most depictions by the sighted. This has not happened before in the history of picture making. Really interesting, isn't it? So here's this man who's been blind from birth, but all that time, he's in his 50s now, all that 50 years, something really interesting has been going on in his head. <laughs> and he's had things that he can see in his head and he's been able to paint them. I know it's weird, but it's happened. And all the people who, when he was a child, said to his parents, forget it, have now to stand and say, isn't this remarkable? Isn't it remarkable what's happened? Now, that's a really nice way of getting to our story. Because in this man's head, in this story, this man who was born blind and ended up as a beggar in the temple and was cruelly mistreated by the temple authorities, treated as nothing because a blind man is worthless in this culture because he can't work and he can't earn a living and he's never married, still living with his mum and dad, he's not doing anything useful, so we treat him as nothing, but all the time, something wonderful is going on in his head and Jesus comes along and releases it. Jesus sets free this wonderful stuff that's been going on in this man's head all this time. So three questions about this passage. The, the story, as, as Damien mentioned, it's a long passage. I'm not going to, uh, you'll be pleased to know, I think, we're not going to take you through the Greek for every verse. And I'm pleased to know it because I don't know the Greek for every verse. But we're just going to look at this story. We're going to look at three points of drama in this story. Three points at which John's telling of the story meets with John's goals in writing his gospel. The three questions, if you like, why has God allowed this man to be blind? How is it that Jesus heals him? And who is really blind? The, the, the last third of the story is about this question, who is really blind in this situation? The why dominates the first part of this chapter. Who is it that sinned in order that this man should be blind? The Pharisees ask, is it his sin or his parents' sin that led to him being born blind? And Jesus says, lovely words, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He doesn't mean they weren't sinners. He means neither of them sinned in any way that's related to this blindness. And then he sort of stepped aside and said, by the way, I'm the son of God. I've read the books. It's not mentioned. Records. We did a quick data search. Uh, we've gone through everything. We cannot find any connection in the heavenly computers between a specific sin that this man has committed and this condition. Doesn't exist. There is no connection. And Jesus breaks that connection. But this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Do you remember Glenn Hoddle? I thought you weren't all quite that young. Good. And uh, do you remember why Glenn Hoddle had to resign as England coach? He had to resign because he made some really stupid comments about disability. And because we never forget, here are some of them. He said, you and I have been physically given two hands and two legs and half-decent brains. Some people have not been born like that for a reason. The karma is working from another lifetime. I have nothing to hide about that. It's not only people with disabilities. What you sow, I can't believe that anybody would say this when someone's holding a microphone. Absolute insanity. And I, you know, I, I don't think we should always hound people out of office because they say something stupid. But in this case, clear off, Glenn, <laughs> frankly. 
it's probably about as stupid as telling people to put petrol in tins in their garage. <laughs> we'll, have to, <laughs> we'll, have to see, we'll have to see what happens with that one, won't we? You know. And Jesus says, no, no. And this is a brilliant no, because you also believe this. I'm sorry, but you do, because this is how we live. And what Jesus is doing here, this is really big, folks, because John knows the Jewish faith. And what he sees Jesus doing in front of these Pharisees is saying this, the Jewish faith is not about judgment and retribution. You have got it wrong, Pharisees. It never was about that. And I am here to tell you that you have read it wrong. Because the Jewish, the Pharisees' tendency to see all disability and all misfortune as related to someone's sin is an untrue reading of the Jewish faith. And it doesn't come from Yahweh, it comes from human paganism. Because human paganism always believes in reward and punishment. And pagans believe that if they make an offering to the gods, they won't suffer misfortune. Christians believe that if they pay their tithes, they won't suffer misfortune. And it's not that much different. I'm sorry, but it's not. Doesn't mean you shouldn't pay tithes, but if you are paying your tithe in the same way that you kiss an elephant on the way out of the door to have a good day, then it's probably better that you stop. It won't do your church any good because they won't have any money, but it'll do your soul the world of good. We do not make offerings to God so that the God who really wants to hurt us decides not to. That's paganism. And Jesus looks it in the eye in the Jewish faith and he says, no, no, I will not have it. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This is not about who sinned. It is simply about this man having an opportunity like we all have to embrace and understand the glory of God. And he's got a really weird and unusual opportunity to understand and embrace the glory of God. And you guys have got a different opportunity. But whatever happens to us, we all have an opportunity to find God in it and to embrace the glory of God. And this has happened to him so that maybe Jesus is saying, God kind of thought that for this guy, this might be a good way of doing it. I know that sounds a bit cruel, but maybe God thought for this guy, he's such a gifted bloke. He's got so much insight. He's so wonderful. I think I can afford to let him take this route. The rest of you, you're wimps, so I'm going to take you the other way. I don't know. But what Jesus is saying is this is an opportunity for the glory of God to be shown. It is not about blame. And I'm just going to say this, and you can be really cross with me. I honestly don't, well, I do mind, but you know what I mean. I'm going to do it anyway. I've got to tell you, folks, what Jesus was telling the Pharisees, Jesus is telling our churches, and we are not listening. Because our churches are built on blame. If you're gay, it's your fault, stupid people. Fancy thinking like that. You need to be normal like us. And normal like us to some people sounds like a curse, folks. I don't, I'm quite up for being normal, but not like you. <laughs> but I do want to be like you. <laughs> we blame people. We even have a government, sorry for being political, it'll only happen once, well, apart from the petrol thing, it'll only happen once. We have a government that sits around talking about the deserving and the undeserving poor. Do you know what Jesus would say if he was in that cabinet meeting? He'd say, no. He'd say, I will not have this. Some people are poor because they're undeserving and some, what a load of nonsense. Stop dividing them into people who deserve your love and people who don't. Love them because God loves them. Not because they deserve it. Because guess what? You don't anyway. We're going to start calling people undeserving. Let's start with the cabinet. I'll stop being political there because that's <laughs> thin ice. <laughs> so we'll retreat from that thin ice, Damien, and we'll go back here. It's not about deserving and undeserving. It's about the glory of God coming. And every circumstance is an opportunity for the glory of God to come. The shortest distance in the universe is the distance between where you are right now and where you need to be to embrace and know the glory of God. Able, disabled, whatever words you use, rich, poor, employed, unemployed, messed up, not messed up, whatever situation you're in. And the good news for you folks is even the nice Christians can get to see the glory of God eventually. 
wherever we are. It's an opportunity to meet with the glory of God. And where did John say the glory of God was to be found? Do you remember? In the face of Jesus. So Jesus is saying, (laughs) I've just thought of this. It's very dangerous to say things you just thought of. Jesus is saying, God has created a situation and this man can see his glory. I am his glory. I better open the guy's eyes so he can see me. (laughs) Because the glory of God is here. And Jesus wants only one. That's what he wants. I want people to see me for who I am. And I want them to know the glory of God. And I want them to know how massively God loves them. John says, my gospel is about being, meeting your God. Prepare to meet thy God. Thou wilt discover that he is full of grace and truth. And I'm kind of racing through this, but I've got to say this. And some of you, for some of you, this really matters. You might want to write it down. But let's stop having churches that do not know what grace is. Let's go back to our churches and say, we don't want to upset everybody. We don't want to be disruptive, but very gently with the nicest whisper, could we try doing church on the basis of grace? Could we just try it for a while and see what happens? Could we get rid of some of this judgmental, horrific thing? Could we stop looking for reasons to denounce people and start looking for reasons to love them? Could we stop looking for who's got it wrong so we can tell them and start finding who's got it right and honoring them? Can we just be people who are a little bit more like Jesus? Because he was full of grace and truth. I'm going to need some in a minute. Okay, second question. How does Jesus heal him? He spits on the ground. He makes mud. He puts on his eyes. He sends him to the pool of Siloam. And there's a couple of things going on here that are important. One is, and we'll do more on this tomorrow, so I don't need to do it now, but the pool of Siloam is really, really big for the Pharisees. I don't mean it's a big pool. I mean it's really important for them. (coughs) <coughs> and there's some reasons to that which we'll go into tomorrow. The Pool of Siloam is a sacred space for the Pharisees. And all you need to know is that Jesus, in order to heal this man, sends him back into the very heart of his Jewish faith. He says, I'm not going to heal you here. I'm going to send you to a place that you think of as sacred, and I'm going to heal you that way. They still know it's Jesus doing it, but he wants to say there is still treasure in this faith. You've got a lot wrong, you Pharisees, but underneath what you've got wrong, there's treasure. And I want this man to know that. So he affirms and blesses the work of God in Jewish history. But then, of course, the second thing he does is recreates this man's life. Because who was it that took clay and made life out of it? Yahweh. Who was at his side when he did it? Wisdom, Logos, Jesus. The Jesus who was at God's side when he made Adam now picks up dirt And again brings life. And John is doing that absolutely on purpose. He's drawing attention to this. He wants us to know that this is God, the creator, revisiting one of his wonderful creations and saying, isn't this exciting? The day has come for you to be recreated. The day has come for your creator to touch you again and to bring healing and blessing. Jesus recreates that moment of creation. What did John say? about this God that he's preparing us to meet. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. Jesus is making things new. Jesus is sent by the Creator. He is the Creator himself. Come to us to make everything new. Let's rediscover what it means that our Jesus is our Maker come to make us new. And then the last thing in this story is this little conversation that then follows about who is really blind. I love this. It's, there's a bit of comedy in it. Pharisees playing their lovely, usual role of Keystone Cops. And they said, you know, they said this man, and they end up saying, you can see the drama of this. It's a bit Shakespearean. Jesus said to them at the beginning of this conversation, neither this man nor his mother and father sinned for this to happen. Then he heals him. And then because the man is so full of wisdom, he's become a theologian instantly. He absolutely confounds them with his testimony. And they say, well, you're just a sinner. I'm into some of the ones I've been to. It's a great card to play. Because if, if you're losing the argument, you just play the sinner card. Yeah, but you're just a sinner anyway. So you sound to me like you're probably right, but you're a sinner, so forget it. They just go back into their little box where they've divided into the world into people God likes who are remarkably like me and people God doesn't like who are remarkably like you. (laughs) We go back into our box and we say, well, you're a sinner anyway, so we don't need to listen to you. 
because that blindness you had was a sign of sin. So we're not going to change our view. And Jesus says, I wonder who's really blind here. In simple terms, the Pharisees are saying, sin can make you blind. And Jesus is saying, be very, very careful because religion can make you blinder still. And our problem is not a lot of us would say that we've been blinded by our sin, though metaphorically we have, but we've certainly been blinded by our religion. If we're going to pray for God to open some eyes in our churches, if we're going to pray for this miraculous Jesus, who is the source of life and light, to come into our churches and open some eyes, how about we pray that he opens ours? How about we pray that he frees us from the prisons of our religion where we point to people who aren't like us and say you're a sinner instead of saying you are an opportunity for the glory of God to be shown. How fancies going home at the end of this week and popping around your streets and saying to the big issue salesman and that guy who's begging and these people you think are weird, you're an opportunity for the glory of God to be seen. You're an opportunity for grace. Your whole life is an opportunity for grace to come. Your whole life is an opportunity for the light of God to come. And Jesus says, I want to free you from your captivity. Let me read a, uh, a poem for you, a prayer together. And then I'll ask Damien. Damien? I'm calling you French. Damien, that's lovely. It suits you, actually. Damien. Oh. I'll ask Damien to come, and then we'll take a few moments to pray to just root this stuff in who Jesus is. The beautiful thing, the beautiful thing about what happens here is how it ends, because at the end, Jesus utterly, utterly honors this man. He goes to find him to make sure he's okay. He lets him be his witness. This man is potentially the first, wit first missionary in the history of the church. <laughs> he's a witness to Christ. He goes from saying this man called Jesus, who I don't really know, to saying he must be a prophet, to saying he's God. <laughs> he goes through that journey, and his testimony, folks, is beautiful. In the Orthodox Church, they teach this as a model of Christian witness. His testimony is this. There's quite a lot of things I don't understand, but I'll tell you this. I used to be blind, and I'm not anymore. And it's really that simple. That's what this Jesus has done for me. Why can't you see it, he says to the Pharisees. Why can't you see how simple and beautiful and wonderful that is? Oh, that God would lift from your eyes the blindfold of your religion that stops you from seeing the glory of God when it's staring you in the face. Let me read this and then we're going to take some moments to reflect. When we claim to have foresight, second sight and insight, when in reality even our first sight is short, Father, open our eyes. When we blunder on blindly like ships in dense fog, never knowing how lost we truly are, Father, open our eyes. When we collide with one another like bats with a radar malfunction, not even noticing the damage we have done, Father, open our eyes. When we walk through your world as if we ourselves had made it and fail to recognize the fingerprints you leave, when we are blind to your presence in the eyes of the poor, blind to the, fe the, to the perfection that lies visibly before us, blind to your handiwork, blind to your care, blind to the signs that you scatter all around us, Father, heal our sight. God, we pray that as a result of our journey in John's gospel this week and the rest of the stuff happening across this site, Lord, as the result of our considering together your purposes for the church, we pray that blind eyes would be open, God. And we pray some of those blind eyes would be in our streets and some of them would be in our pews. But you would open our eyes to the glory of the one and only shining in the face of Jesus.